Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Ting, in our opinion, one of the best wireless service providers in the country. Go to smartpeople.ting.com to figure out why 98% of people would save money with Ting. Smartpeople.ting.com. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hey everybody, welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Let's get right into satisfying the curiosity today as we talk with Jared Dean. Jared is the author of Big Data, Data Mining and Machine Learning. That's one book in the title, not three different books, but covers all those areas. A lot of things that I've always kind of wondered about, but didn't know too much about. I know Big Data exists and they're doing data mining. And what I come to find out is you ever wonder why Netflix can make such great movie recommendations or Facebook targets ads that are like, it's creepy how much they're targeted at you. That's where this plays a role. So we're going to talk to Jared. Jared is the senior director of research and development at SAS. He's responsible for the development of their worldwide data mining solutions, including customer engagements, new feature development, and prior to joining SAS, Dean worked as a mathematical statistician for the U.S. Census Bureau. So it's really fun. We actually start off talking about one of my favorite subjects, which is gambling. Given that football season is upon us, actually today, and I plan on doing a ton of gambling, 
Uh, I was hoping he could give me some insight using some data analysis. So going to turn it over here to Jared in a minute. If you guys are enjoying the show, head on over to iTunes, leave us a rating and a comment. We really appreciate it. And also sign up for our newsletter at smartpeoplepodcast.com. It's the easiest way to keep in touch with us and what's going on. We're also giving away a lot of stuff over there, books, and we just gave away Kindles and Amazon gift cards. We got something new we're going to be giving away, and we do it through the newsletter. So thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy it. Here we are, Jared Dean. All right, Jared, thanks so much for being on the show. The first thing I wanted to ask you is you realize it's almost football season, and I love football, and even more than that, I love gambling on football. So what I'm hoping to get out of this interview, it will be a win for me if you can tell me how to win money using (laughs) statistical analysis. Is that possible? You know, I am sure it is possible. I don't know that I can tell you how to do that. Uh. Um, I, you know, I personally bet on, I personally like the Broncos. I grew up in Colorado <laughs> and so I, I, I root for them and I, I still haven't recovered from the horrific Super Bowl showing they had this last time. Yeah. But it, it is possible. The, uh, the big, the interesting thing there is that you have to have, we have to have a lot of data, um, in order to be able to make good predictions. And one of the problems with football is they just don't play it as much. They don't play a lot. Sure. You know, only 16 games a season. It's hard to get a lot of information. If you look at other sports like baseball, you know, with the 162 games, you get a much better, a lot more accuracy as to how you can into predicting how people will do. Well, that's really interesting. I mean, because I, I don't think we've talked to some people on this subject in the past, but I've always wondered how that's done. I've had these these visions of grandeur. I mean, I really love gambling on football and I've tried to and I was a finance major so I know basic excel and I think that mm-hmm. is going to qualify me as some expert. And so I've tried to build these little models, you know, you hear about people doing it and they're terrible. So how possible and plausible is that for somebody of your caliber you understand this stuff do you think if you said you know what i'm going to spend a few months i could put together a fairly decent win to loss ratio in say a sport like baseball that has more uh more games being played you know if i wish i could say i was really good at that and even somebody of my caliber could do it and if i could then i probably you know wouldn't have to work anymore because i could make enough money <laughs> that was betting. my thought process yes <laughs> right you know it's it's um it's interesting there's a professor at north carolina state his name is david dickey and uh, he teaches this course about time series for about forecasting you know and obviously and forecasting is essentially deciding what's going to happen in the future and he's like you know i people always want to know about the stock market you know what's going to happen even if cuz if i could predict accurately what's going to happen with the dow tomorrow i can make a lot of money and he's like the problem is is that as soon as you have that information, markets adjust. And that if you had if you had enough information to build a good model, then you know you would always be right. But um, there's a, a very famous statistician named uh, George Box, and he basically he's famous for quote, for making this quote that basically all models are uh, wrong, but some are useful. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so you know it, it kind of goes to that theory that you know we can tr- we try and I mean what a model is is it's really we're trying to describe and put order around what we observe in the world, but we never can quite do it accurately enough. Hmm. 
that's uh, disappointing for me. I have to admit, I was thinking this is going to be the day I learn how to beat the NFL. <laughs> and I wish I could give you that, but uh, but maybe we can talk offline and see if we can and work something out. There we go. I like to hear it. Well, you know, I I did want to just kind of learn more. I know when it comes to what you do in general, from what I know and from your book. I just see, you know, big data, data mining, machine learning. I understand the basics. I understand a little bit about the fact that there's tons of data being generated all the time, whether it's how you interact on the website or on TV or wherever it might be. But I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about what your specific focus is or what your expertise is in and, and kind of let us know more about what you do. Sure. So my current role is I run an R&D organization um, at, at SAS Institute, and we develop data mining software. So I, my, my, my team and I are building software solutions that companies, so I think, I think the number is 95 of the Fortune 100 and 490-something of the Fortune 500, um, all use SAS software. And uh, basically what we do is we enable companies to answer their business problems. And the way we do that is by developing algorithms. A lot the, the kind of the buzzword today, one of the big buzzwords today is machine learning. So it's basically letting machines comp- do lots of computations in order to find patterns. Um, if you think about a good analogy is if you think about um, you think about static or lots of noise, there's all this information, all this stuff that's going around. You, you talked about all these transactions and businesses are tracking all the types of things we do and all the websites we visit and things like that. And it's trying to dis- distill the small, the whisper in the, in the static to try and find that, that, that small amount of signal that's in the noise. And that's really what I help. I develop software solutions that, uh, that companies can then use to help answer questions like, a lot of it has to do with outliers, um, the, the rare event type thing. So in the banking scenario, a lot of it's like who is, who, which transactions are fraudulent? There are hundreds of millions, maybe billions of credit card transactions that happen every day. And a very, very, very small proportion of those are fraudulent. But those over a year add up to, I think it's tens of billions of dollars. And so if a bank can figure out which ones are fraudulent just a little bit better, then they can save themselves a lot of money. I really love that, you know, that story that you just told and that comparison, that analysis, because I never really grasped it to that level. So I I always thought about it. Okay, there's tons of data coming in and I'm sure you can figure out a a bunch of different things. But the more I think about it, there is it that there's too much data coming in. You can't really we're not at this level where we can analyze it and get a lot of great stuff. But what we can do is get a little bit of stuff that's fairly important right we're trying yeah you're trying to you know you're trying to distill the information down so and it's interesting so i you know my background is in statistics i my undergraduate degree and my graduate degree are both in statistics and statistics really started you know back in the 50s it was how much how much can i tell you gathering up the least amount of data because data collection was just so expensive um and it's really data mining and machine learning and you know, whatever these buzz terms are for, you know, data scientists and stuff like that, it's really gone the complete opposite direction. It's how do I get rid of all the excess stuff that doesn't tell me anything, doesn't add any value, and just get down to the few, 
the few things that are valuable. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of the opposite problem. Well, and then the title of your book being big data, data mining and machine learning and value creation for business leaders and practitioners. I'm trying to make sure I understand this. So big data is the idea, right? It's just massive quantities of data. Data mining is going through that data. And then machine learning is programming machines to sift through that data to come out with a conclusion or hypothesis. Is that a decent summation? Yeah, that's a pretty decent summation. I mean, big data is a term that I think used to mean something. I mean, it's a term that, that has lost <laughs> some of its meaning as it's become more popular. Because um, it used to be, I think, exactly that. You had massive amounts of data. Think of, you know, terabytes or petabytes of, of just disk drives. Um, and now I think people use it to mean more of I have this amount of data that I can't deal with efficiently. It might be that it's a huge volume of it. It might be that it has a very short lifespan. Or it could be that it's very computationally difficult to work with. And so I just can't, even though it's not super large, it's something that I have to that that I have to really spend a lot of time computing with. A lot of optimization type problems are like that. So if you're trying to find, you know, the best mix of uh, so, so say like laundry detergents. So when they're building laundry detergents, they want to try and make a chemical mix that you know is effective at removing stains, um, but that also is you know safe for the environment and also is uh, the cheapest they can make, you know, the cheapest they can get these ingredients. And so they have to figure out what is the market price for these raw materials? What's the ideal mixture? What's the chemical compounds that go into it? It's not that it's so much data, but it's an incredibly complex mixture, lots and lots of variables and dimensions that go into it that it takes a long time to figure it out. You mentioned this earlier, and I wrote it down because I, I definitely want to hear your answer to this. The word algorithm, I feel like, has just morphed into this magical fairy that can fix everything. Like, when people say, oh, we created this algorithm that solves X, Y, and Z, or our business runs off of this algorithm, and blah, blah, blah. What's the difference between an algorithm and a good old-fashioned equation? Oh, they're the same thing. Okay, okay. I mean, you know, at a high level, they're the same thing. I mean, and, and that's in one of the sections of the book, I kind of talk, I walk through a bunch of different algorithms because that's a, you know, it's a $10 word and, and, and equations just a $2 word. Exactly. That's so, my point. Yeah, totally. But, you know, so we talk about, I, I start with kind of one of the most basic ones, which is, which you probably talk, learned in, in, in finance a little bit, was recency, frequency, and monetary. So the best predictor of your, you know, of who is going to be a good person to market to would be people who have recently purchased, who frequently purchase, or who have spent a large amount of money. And that's just pretty much common sense. Um, and, you know, that's kind of one of the most basic algorithms. You know, an algorithm is simply, I mean, it is. It's an equation. It's, I would say it's slightly different in that, you know, the equations we learn in math are generally fixed. You know, 2 plus, four, two, plus 2 is always equal to 4. And there's, they don't account for, you know, a little bit of the, the randomness or the variation that happens going back to our, our football discussion, why we can't actually accurately determine who's going to win the Super Bowl next year, because there is that, that randomness that we can't quantify. Mm -hmm. And so that's, there's a slight difference there, a slight nuance between an equation and an algorithm, but in a lot of cases, they're about the same thing. Yeah, it's just funny. I love how I feel like Google basically said, we use an algorithm, and then everyone went, oh, shit, we, got, we have to use an algorithm now. You know? <laughs> well, I've got to use that word now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
I do want to kind of geek out with you here a little bit, Jared, because I don't think that Chris appreciates the algorithms and machine learning because I was trying to talk to him about how we are basically letting computers teach themselves and getting closer and closer to that. I went to a data science event here in D.C., Uh, a few months ago, and it was all around, you know, machine learning to spot different things in videos and all that kind of stuff. So can you go into machine learning a little bit deeper and explain that? Yeah. So machine learning. So a lot of times I get asked, what's the difference between a a data mining algorithm and a machine learning algorithm? And and my answer to that is really, there's a huge kind of holy war and discussion that goes on inside uh, in a lot of people's minds, but I, I draw a very simple distinction in that one came out of a statistical department and the other came out of a computer science department. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the computer science departments generally give them cooler names and have a machine, you know, there's random <laughs> forests and there's neural networks yep. and gradient boosting machines and factorization machines and all this, all these machines. And it's essentially that, you know, a computer is going to take and do these computations and it's going to, and then it's going to uh, arrive at some very, very complex equation um, in order to predict a result, and computer vision is one of the kind of the cooler fields that we talk about. You know, I was in, um, I was at a conference in San Jose um, a few months ago, uh, an Informs Big Data conference, and on the way back, I stopped by uh, Mountain View to visit a friend, and I stopped. The stoplight in front of me was a self-driving car from Google, hmm. and that essentially, you know, what it's doing is it's it's got sensors and it's got computers that are picking up information, and then it's using different algorithms in order to determine basically what's in front of me. And there's a very famous data set um, that a lot of, uh, that, we, that we use a lot called the NIST data. And so it's handwritten digits by people. And you're basically trying to make a, let a computer figure out what that digit is. It's something you know, humans do very, very, very well, but it's really hard to teach a computer to do that. And it's through creating these very complex equations and these very and nuances in the different you know, shades of the shades of the um, pixels and things like that, that you can help that a computer can actually learn what a single digit is. Yeah, it's pretty impressive because when it actually splits it into different pieces and then reorders it to actually put that picture back together, it's super complex, way over my head. But I just wanted to to make sure that our listeners got a good idea of machine learning. Really oh, cool. I mean, in some ways, it's almost like magic. I mean, and some of the stuff that, that some of the you know, I have a whole bunch of people in my group that um, a lot, several of them are more recent graduates than I am and have done some really crazy stuff. And they sh- we talk about some of the things that they've worked on or that, that we're trying. And it just seems like magic sometimes. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. And the thing you were talking about, if, if we can figure out how to teach computers to learn numbers, would that remove the need for, or I don't want to say the need, but the, our, our current block with computers being binary? You know, I don't know. Um, I mean, the thing is, at the end of, I mean, the way the way a current silicon, you know, based computer works today is that, you know, it's just a series of ones and zeros in a pattern. The bits are on or they're off, and it might. I, I don't know if that's necessarily needed. needed. I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was just um, something. I was like, wow. That, I wonder how that would change things, but. Oh well, but it, but I think what it does is it allows it allows humans to do things that are a lot more interesting. I mean, it allows humans to, I mean, and that's one of the things I've tried to, you know, in my career is one of the things is I've, I've tried to automate myself out of a job. Like I like to work on interesting things and I like to, you know, have something new and exciting to kind of play with. And so anytime I have to do something like three or four times, 
I want to figure out how to make a computer do it mm-hmm. because I, I just I just get bored doing the same thing over and over again. I think a lot of people do, and and so trying to automate myself out of a job. And this is one of those things that if I can teach a computer, like I would love it if I could get a computer to drive me to work. <laughs> I could you know I could read the paper. I could you know I could look at journal articles. I could listen you know listen to stuff on the. I guess I can already listen to stuff. But I could watch TV, all that kind of stuff. If a computer could drive me to work, that would be pretty awesome. Well, so here's the thing, right? Like, if you look back uh, decades ago, and I, I'm sure you know this much better than I do, but there was all these predictions about what technology would do for us. You know, we're going to have this u- utopian society because robots are going to be doing everything. It's going to free us up, and life's going to be easy. And then in turn, what happened was this technology definitely developed, yet we work harder, longer, are more stressed out. The income gap is growing. So thus far, that idea hasn't necessarily played out. What are your thoughts on that? I I think, I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, And I think part of it is because we have, I think, a very optimistic view about what technology can do for us um, at times. Um, You know, neural networks were something that was developed in the, it started in the the late 40s, early 50s. And... um, it's uh, you know, the artificial intelligence ideas are, are a lot based on these neural networks, and um, you know the first application was to help reduce um, static sounds on telephone lines. They wanted to help make call quality better in the '50s, and so they used neural networks to help filter out that static. Um, and then you know that field basically went completely dormant for several decades because people were so disappointed with you know the early achievements they made just couldn't continue on that, on that, on that path. And, uh, but, and I think that, that innovation is largely incremental. I mean, there are occasional times when we just jump leaps and bounds ahead, but a lot of times we're making, you know, small steps forward. And so eventually, I mean, I think in maybe in a hundred years, we'll look back and think about all the achievements we've made, but right now those achievements don't seem that big. And now it's time for our awesome sponsors who support Smart People Podcast. I have to tell you guys about an amazing service called Ting. 98% of people would save money with Ting. That's because Ting does mobile differently. They don't believe in locking you into a contract or making you pick a plan. They also don't believe in overages or penalties. Why, you might ask? Because Ting believes there's a better way to do mobile. Head over to smartpeople.ting.com to use their handy savings calculator and figure out how much you could be saving today. I'm going to go ahead and do that live on air right now and head over there and enter my last three monthly bills with AT&T to see what I would save using Ting. Going through, I entered bill one, two, and three, all my minutes used, my text messages sent and received, and my megabytes used within my data plan. Because my bill is about $95 a month, I put that in there as well. Hit calculate savings, and it lets me know just how much I would save by switching to Ting. I'm not surprised to see that I'd save over $800 in two years by switching to Ting. That's an average of about $34 a month, and my average bill would come out to be about 60 bucks. I'm a heavy data user, so this doesn't surprise me that much, but the savings at Ting are phenomenal. Again, head over to smartpeople.ting.com to see just how much you could save by switching to Ting today. Don't forget, if you use our link, you'll be able to take advantage of Ting's special promotion. Already have a Ting Ready device? Activate it and get $25 in Ting credit. 
Need a device? See what Ting has to offer and get $25 off. That's smartpeople.ting.com. As you all know, John and I just ran a contest on 99designs to get a sticker created for Smart People Podcast. Well, that contest is over. We have the stickers in our possession, and we want to send them to you. And it's all thanks to the amazing designers at 99designs. If you're looking to get anything designed, a sticker, a website, a logo, t-shirts, 99designs is honestly the best place to go. It's the world's largest graphic design marketplace, and it makes it easy to get the design you love. Here's what we did. First, go to 99designs.com smart, which will help you get a $99 power pack of services for free. Once you're there, you can start your contest by putting up a design brief of what you want created. After you do that, you'll get bids from dozens of designers. We got over a hundred designs submitted to us that we got to choose from, which eventually we worked with the designer, something that normally would cost five times as much. We tweaked it continually over the next couple of weeks and eventually got something perfect for us at an amazing price. That's the beauty of 99designs. When you do a contest like this, you have a number of designers competing to win one piece of business, which makes it exponentially more efficient, creative, enjoyable, and in the end, perfect for you. Visit 99designs.com slash smart and get a $99 power pack of services free. Yeah. It's it's funny that you said 100 years because I actually had a bet with somebody in a bar. I don't remember if it was Chris or another one of my buddies. I don't about, go to bars, John. It wasn't me. Oh, well, it was for <laughs> Justin's going away. Yeah. Um, I, I made the comment that I think that the majority of our jobs will be replaced in the next 50 years. And people were so adamantly against that claim. But I just think with, you know, how computers are developing and all that kind of thing that where you said you try to automate yourself out of a job, there are so many jobs that can be automated and probably cheaper than actual manual labor. So do you think that it will, you know, we'll move to a, a moment in time where we have way less jobs? And then what happens with people in that sense? I, I don't know that we'll have way less jobs. I think we'll think of there'll be different jobs. I mean, you know, like one of the things is, you know, the data, the amount of data in the world is growing at a huge rate. So that 90% of all the world's data is less than two years old. I mean, if you think about that for a moment, I mean, that means that, you know, the amount of stuff we store, I mean, it's just the things that we'll be doing. I mean, the, the job I do today didn't exist. Like when I was, so one of the things I, I've always wanted to kind of figure out how things worked. I used to, you know, I was the kid who took, took things apart and couldn't always get them back together again. And my parents were very, very patient with me, <laughs> but, um, you know, I thought I wanted to be a mechanical engineer because those were people who, you know, figured things out and, and took things apart and built things. I mean, but I don't think that the job of a, certainly a data scientist or even a data miner and things, those jobs just didn't exist when I was a kid. Right. And I mean, I look at my kids now and, I, you know, I, I don't know what they'll study. I hope they study something that says computational in it, <laughs> um, but, but that could be anything. Um, there's just so many things, so many avenues and things that are going on, you know, in the study of science and, you know, computational chemistry, computational biology. I mean, just all the things that are going on that we just didn't think of or that we just didn't think would have existed. Yeah. And, you know, I just read this article and it wasn't in preparation for the interview. It was just these are things that I'm interested in. And it it talked about kind of what I was alluding to earlier about the how technology hasn't been a panacea yet. And then there was kind of a rebuttal to this article 
the argument's way you know gone on forever, but that okay, yes, we haven't solved all our issues, but the poorest people today live better than some of the richest people not too long ago. You know, there's basically a TV in every home in America. Almost, you know, I'm sure the majority have internet. Things that really, you're talking just 10, 20, 30 years ago were not the case. That's still a pretty big step in the right direction. It is. I was I was listening to NPR on my commute um, home, I think yesterday or the day before, and there was an article uh, Wall, I think it was Wall Street Journal did a did a thing with um, with Google, and they were looking at basically what people in the wealthiest zip codes or counties what things they search for on Google versus oh, wow. the people in the poorest counties and what they search for. And one of the comments they made was that basically this study couldn't have been done five or ten years ago because the internet penetration for these poorer counties mm. was just so low they couldn't have gotten any inf- useful information. I mean, so they they made the comment that basically, you know, internet access has almost become ubiquitous in the United States. And so, you know, and smartphones, you know, have grown to leaps and bounds. And the things that you can do on a smartphone today are just amazing. And it's got more power, you know, than the space shuttle program. Right. Yeah. Do you remember what the results uh, were of that that uh, Google study? (laughs) <laughs> um, let's see. In the in the wealthiest counties, the things people search for were digital cameras. What else did they search for? Like they were trying to, you know, the things that were unique to those. And they, it wasn't necessarily wealth. It wasn't necessarily wealth, but it was like better off. And so I think they looked at like health and and income and mm. education, a couple other things. But digital cameras was one thing I do remember that well that the have searched for that the have nots didn't. Um, the have nots searched for more things like high blood pressure. Oh wow. Um, you know, welfare programs, food stamps, et cetera, you know, kind of tra- typical things you would expect. But sure. digital cameras was the thing I remember that I have searched for that the have-nots didn't. That's really interesting. Well, I wanted to kind of talk a little bit more about machine learning that John touched on because I think that's just one of the coolest things. And I was hoping you could give us some examples. I know in your book you talk about some examples of what you mean by machine learning. What are some companies that are using this today that we interact with or the vast majority of people interact with and we might not even realize that's how uh, they've built their product sure yeah so uh, two quick examples so um, one of the ones I talk about in the introduction of my book is a, is a drug called tamoxifen um, and so tamoxifen is a breast cancer drug uh, used to, to help treat breast cancer and so one of the things they found is that tamo- they found that tamoxifen was effective in 80% of cases. Um, and then as they began to study and look into the, in the data, the, you know, we talked about big data, the, they were keeping data on these patients. As they began to look at it, they actually found a marker. And so tamoxifen is not actually 80% effective. It's 100% effective in 80% of the population, wow. and it's 0% effective in 20% of the population. And so now what, how, how oncologists can treat breast cancers, they can do a relatively simple blood test, look for a specific marker, and if that marker's there, they know tamoxifen will work. If it's not there, then they go to a different drug. That's and really so, crazy. Yeah. I mean, so it's, I mean, it's an example where this is something that, you know, where medicine is evolving. And so now people, instead of having to start with a drug, hope it works, if it doesn't work, go on to something else, they can now basically a priori beforehand, they can basically say, okay, this is the drug, this is a drug that's going to work to treat your cancer. I just, something I, we couldn't have done before the big data era. Yeah. I mean, I didn't even think about health, health aspects when I, when I get into big data and 
data mining and all that, I, I obviously go straight to the tech scene. So I'm thinking about tech companies, but I mean, it's got to be mind blowing and just and game changing for for the health arena. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, another area where machine learning uh, really does well is is in recommendations. So, and you know, because before you could before we had some of these algorithms and the ability to work with before we had you know distributed computing and um, distributed file systems and, and all this you know the the, big, the computing aspects got really cheap in the last ten years. Before that, you had to almost always you had to sample your data, you had to summarize your data, and so some things were really really hard to do. Like um, recommendations are largely based. So think about Amazon or Netflix or something like that. So what they're what they're really doing is they're looking at okay, I have all of these users and I have all of these items. And so if a user likes an item, then I can look for other users who like that item and see what they liked and make a recommendation. So the user item recommendation. Or I can look at which items are, associ- are commonly sold together and then I can recommend that item, kind of a market basket type of thing. Mm-hmm. And if you're having to sample the data or summarize the data or can only keep a very small window of the data available, then you can't make very good recommendations. But now that you can process you know, orders of magnitude more information, you can make better recommendations. And so now things you know, like Netflix has gotten much better, in my opinion. Well, it got, it got really good when you could actually create different accounts within your household. Yeah. That's where it really got better because then you know, instead of getting your wife's and your teenagers mm-hmm. and all the other people's mixed together, you could actually focus on what you liked. But you know, those recommendation qualities actually gotten better because they can look at just more data and more information. Now, what does the current scene of data look like? Because you mentioned a few minutes ago that we've created 90% of the existing data in the last couple of years. So, I mean, if I think about that, the amount of data that we're creating on a daily basis, I mean, just with sites like Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and the number of hours that goes on to that every single day, are we going to hit a point where we're oversaturated with data or do we have the processing power? Do we have the ability to go through all that data or is there way too much, is there going to be way too much noise? I think there's going to be I think there's going to be way too much noise. I mean, I don't know that we'll ever catch up. I, I think it's um, I think it's Marissa Meyer who has a quote that says um, basically the answer to any data collection question is sooner is sooner you know sooner is 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 the best time to do it. Something to that effect. I'm paraphrasing, but um, you know, computing has got way cheaper. Our, our we're collecting a lot more data, um, and and so there's a new cons- a new term that's kind of evolving called the data lake, where you just basically take and throw everything into this, you know, this data lake. I think da- data gar- landfill might be a better, better <laughs> times. Um, but then we have, you know, organizations have to figure out which data has value and which ones to actually keep. And I think that's one of the big shifts that's happened in the last uh, five years, or that that I've viewed is that. You know, we organizations have kind of moved into this era of abundance. I have lots of data, and the because the storage costs of that of storing that data because that cost has gone way down, companies are keeping a lot of stuff and they become pack rats. And so we have, I think, that organizations have to be cognizant of if this data hasn't shown some kind of value. At some point in time, I need to dump it and get rid of it because it's just the expense to drag this around is sometime, at some point going to be 
uh, you know, unsatisfactory. So, Disk drive manufacturers, I'm sure, love it. Yeah, but... I bet. <laughs> so how does that how does that happen though? Because I look at things like Twitter, the amount of stuff that they put out on a daily basis is absolutely insane. And I just saw something where using data mining and, and something else that people were able to figure out that the Ebola outbreak happened a week before anybody actually announced that it happened because they were, you know, searching and mining through social media. Now, that data, there's a ton of garbage in there, too, because there's people tweeting at Justin Bieber or tweeting at whoever else. And that's what Chris does on a daily basis. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) But how are we going to be able to figure out what that actual important data is when it's coming in at such a rapid clip? Yeah, well, I think that's I think that's a factor of having. I think it's a matter of having a, a, a good, strong workforce that has these skills, and then having tools, software tools that are able to help answer those business problems. Um, I mean, you have to have people who are looking to try and answer those problems. Then you have to have um, you have to have the tools necessary to do it. Right, um, and that's one of the things that that I've enjoyed uh, working at SaaS is that. You know, I work with SaaS has a. Uh, it's usually one of the top, uh, you know, top ten places to work, and the longevity there is incredible. I work with a number of people that have been at the company for twenty, thirty, twenty five, twenty, twenty five, and thirty years in the same role, and so a lot of these people have been doing this, you know, since the mid eighties, and so you know, there's this huge array of, and collection of research and things that they've done, and that you know, the, my team today is building on work that we've been doing for, for decades. And um, I think that we have to make sure that we have students coming out of universities and graduate students that are versed and have the skills necessary to work with, you know, with this volume of data in an efficient way and continue to try and push the envelope about how they can get find more of that signal. And we need to continue to fund, uh, I don't know how we do this, but we need to fund those things to help the social good. I so mean, like finding Ebola breakouts early is wonderful. Right. And that's everyone benefits from that. So if you're a business in today's day and age, I mean, do you have to have a data analytics, data mining team to stay relevant and stay within your industry or sector? I mean, I, I think it kind of depends on what you're doing, but I mean, I would, I would say that analytics, that the, the, that the best run companies I've seen do make data driven decisions mm-hmm. and in order to make a data driven decision, you have to have people analyzing the data. Um, and a lot of the companies I work with, almost every company, you know, I can imagine has a marketing department. They want to try and attract customers. Sure. And so who to market to and what the potential is for those things is all, um, you know, we've been, people have been doing it by gut for decades, but, you know, and I I have a huge bias, but I think data driven decisions are better. And so having a, you know someone look at the data and answer those questions will give them better answers. And yeah, I mean I think that there's a huge shortage as well. I think is it McKinley that came out with a report that there's going to be a shortage in the next ten years or so. There'll be a shortage of I think hundreds of thousands of qualified data professionals, qualified data analysts. Well, I saw that uh, Google's chief economist said that statisticians will be the sexiest job of the next 10 years. So 
That all doesn't, I mean, it does surprise me, but I guess I can see why after this conversation. I think it's the sexiest job now. Uh, I, bet you, I bet you would. <laughs> no I bet bias there. I bet your wife does as well. No, intentional, yeah, huge bias there. <laughs> and, you know, while we're kind of on that subject, because your colleague, Polly, is the one that brought that up to me. And she graciously reached out and let us know about your book. And I, I wanted to tell her thank you. And I also wanted to say she pointed out in her email a study that was done by Talent Analytics, which found that the most important trait of analytics practitioners is curiosity. And much of our podcast is built around this idea of curiosity and really just trying to nurture it and grow it and how useful it can be in so many aspects of life. So I was wondering, given that you're in this world, if you could tell us from your perspective how curiosity really benefits you and your team in a day-to-day basis. Yeah, my so my curiosity, I, I've always had an innate curiosity. I just want to know how things work. And so a lot of the, and I want to know how we can, how I can find the pattern. Um, I really, you know, I, I like Sudoku problems and I like, you know, these different pattern things. And so, you know, these games... And so a lot of it is, um, is, you know, sitting in the room with colleagues and talking about the types of problems that we would like computers to be able to solve or we would like to be able to answer and then talking about strategies for how you can do that. And, you know, I work with a lot of smart people and, you know, it always involves a whiteboard and involves, you know, some math and concepts about, well, how do we generalize these different types of solutions we you know we work in in a you know in in the industry that i'm in in developing software we have you know thousands and thousands of customers and so we don't develop a custom one-off type of solution but we're trying to find a generalized way to solve a problem and that works across industries and and different things and so we always have this curiosity um, with how can we make it work in all cases, how can we make it faster? How can we make it easier for someone to understand? Um, you know, everybody, most people in my group have, have PhDs and postdocs and, and lots of years of school, but we want to try and build tools for people who don't need to have that. I don't want, I don't want people to have to have that in order to be able to make data-driven decisions. And so we try and, and simplify things and, and, and do a lot of the research to figure out what, what machine learning algorithms and things are the best, and then provide that to our customers. Well, that's fantastic. Well, you know, Jared, I I really appreciate you being on the show. Interesting stuff and some things. Learn something new every day, obviously. Your book is Big Data, Data Mining, and Machine Learning, Value Creation for Business Leaders and Practitioners, which we will link to on smartpeoplepodcast.com. I didn't know if there's anywhere else you, um, you know, do you blog or anywhere you'd like to plug for our listeners who are interested in this subject? I, I do blog, but not as often as I should. Um, I'm probably most active on Twitter, and okay. you can find me at uh, Jared L. Dean is my Twitter handle. And so, yeah, I'd love for people to follow me, and I, you know, try and post articles and, and blog things and then events and things where I'm speaking. So, yeah, I'm happy to have people follow me there have people connect and just get nerdy and learn about all this fun stuff, right? Absolutely. (laughs) All right, Jared. Well, again, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Have a great night. Thanks. Bye. 
Welcome back. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Jared Dean. Again, you can check out his book, Big Data, Data Mining, and Machine Learning, Value Creation for Business Leaders and Practitioners on Amazon or your local bookstore. If you want to reach out to Jared and talk to him about some of the complicated stuff in big data, like neural networks, random forests, all that crazy data science stuff that's out there, you can reach him on Twitter at Jared L. Dean. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can reach us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. If you enjoyed this episode or other episodes, please head over to iTunes and Stitcher and leave us a rating and review there. It truly does help out the show and helps us get and continue to get awesome guests for the show. So don't forget, head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Tell a friend or two. We really, really do appreciate it. See you guys next week. We'll be right back.